welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about recent terrorism charges in Canada, those relating to the attack in London, Ontario, and a terrorism travel case. What does this say about how this troubled area of prosecutions are going in Canada? To do that, I'm joined by Intrepid team members, Jessica Davis and Michael Nesbitt. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here, Steph. Thanks for having us. On June 6 at 8.40 p.m. in London, Ontario, a black pickup truck veered onto the sidewalk and struck a family out for a walk on an early summer night. Over the next few days, police began to describe the incident as a hate-motivated vehicle attack that appeared to be directly targeting Muslims. In addition, politicians and public officials, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, have called or referred to the incident as a terrorist attack. Among other offenses, Nathaniel Veltman has now been charged with murder terrorism, which is under Section 231601 of the Criminal Code, which stipulates murder is first-degree murder when the death is caused by that person while committing or attempting to commit an indictable offense under this or any other act of parliament if the act or omission constituting the offense also constitutes a terrorist activity. Importantly, this is possibly the first time terrorism charges have been laid in Canada against someone who is believed to have been motivated by far-right extremism, although, and we want to be careful here, this is to be confirmed. But certainly, charges laid against far-right actors is something that certain groups in civil society have called for for some time, but it is not without challenges and concerns about what this means for Canada's counterterrorism regimes. So I want to do a very technical discussion of what we know about this case and the charges that have been laid. We are planning on doing a podcast that focuses on the impact on the Muslim community later on in the summer. But for now, before our discussion today, I want to acknowledge the names of those who are lost in this attack. Salman Afzal, Mariah Salman, Yumna Afzal, Talat Afzal, and injured in the attack was Faiz Afzal, a nine-year-old boy. So Mike, this is some pretty heavy stuff, but I'd be really interested in your take on this terrorism charge. Sure, there's a couple of things that are probably worth mentioning from the legal angle. So the first is, this is depending on how you, you define incels and depending on what's confirmed here, this would be your first or second case of something approximating far-right extremism, xenophobia, et cetera, being charged as terrorism. And so the other the other case we have that might be similar is also in the past year. And recently we've looked at the, the numbers for Canada. So we have 62 individuals charged or thereabouts by my numbers. And only two of them would have been on the far right spectrum. And both of those would have been in the last year, year and a half, two years. And so this would be one of them. So that's 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 one thing, which is that we're definitely seeing movement on this file into a different sort of ideologically motivated violent extremism in terms of terrorism and a willingness to acknowledge some of these others' ideologies as being capable of amounting to uh, terrorism. The second thing that we're seeing here that is almost unique, I say almost, because again, it's, it's sort of our second case, not our first, but also in the last year or two is these charges with respect to murder terrorist activity. So again, we hadn't had any of those over almost 20 years, the first 20 years since our terrorism legislation came into effect or our criminal offenses came into effect. 
And in the last couple of years, we've seen our first two cases where an individual has been charged with murder. And then on top of that, they've added the terrorist activity. Now, that's interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is there was some debate publicly and some implication from some public officials that it just wasn't worth charging terrorist activity when you already had first degree murder. And the reason was quite simply, if you already have first degree murder, the terrorist activity does nothing but make what would otherwise be say second degree murder, first degree murder. So it really doesn't actually add anything to the sentence to the charge. Uh, murder is already supposed to be our most, like don't usually talk about it in terms of sort of um, that spectrum of, of crimes, but it, I mean, it's, it's tacitly acknowledged murder is already our most serious offense. So if you're already talking about the most serious offense with the longest punishment, with no real addition to the punishment, then what the, what the story, how the story went was, well, if, if that's the case, why charge someone like Alexandre Bissonnette and make the, the mosque killer? Why charge him and make the trial longer? more expensive, the possibility that there would be problems. We've talked about access intelligence to evidence on this podcast before, right? So why risk undermining a trial when we know we already have them for the most serious offense that will give them this leg? And I think what's happening in this case and the spa attack is the other one from Toronto of about a year ago. I think, I think what you're seeing here is criminal law isn't just about the sentence. It's also about the communicative aspect, right? So we talk about deterrence regularly as being one of the goals of, of criminal law. And that's not, a, that's not a punishment. That's a that's a signal to society that this is wrong, that we don't accept this, that there's a stigma associated it, that the rest of society doesn't like that. And so I think that's what this acknowledgement here, the addition really adds is an acknowledgement that even if it doesn't add anything to the sentence at the end of the day, we need to acknowledge when something uh, looks and feels and, and meets the legal definition of terrorism, that that's what it is. And so those are, those are two things that are really, that you're seeing coming out of this one, I think, that are really almost unique in that only the second time in both cases and new in that it's only happening over the last couple of years, but it'll be something for us to follow. I want to pick up on what Mike's saying about the signaling. And I think this is a really important point. And something that we're seeing a little bit more across the government's handling of terrorism writ large, our terrorist listings can fall to a certain extent under the same sort of umbrella of signaling, the concrete things that they achieve are, are quite limited. But by designating a terrorist entity as a terrorist, putting them on the terrorist list, you're signaling to the broader community what is and what isn't acceptable. To a certain extent, you're also talking a little bit about priorities in terms of investigations. And in terms of the terrorism charges, you're also signaling, from my view, that these are the kinds of things that should be disrupted ahead of time. And this is what we haven't seen yet. So we've seen these two charges, they're after the fact, they're sort of throwing terrorism on the end of the murder charge. But I think what we need to be looking for next is going to be really the RCMP disrupting and preemptively laying charges before this kind of activity happens. Because in most of the cases that we've seen, there are some warnings and indications that the individuals are planning terrorist activity. So it's really, from my perspective, about reassigning those resources and getting ahead of the curve, being left of bang, as Mike and Leah and Craig would all say, rather than right of bang. Yeah. And Steph, if I can just pick up on, on that great point, uh, just to back it up with the numbers, which is that 59 of our 62 cases were uh, to date, or 
cases, but individuals charged were associated with ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Some sort of affiliation was sort of ISIS or Al-Qaeda. And the vast majority of them that actually went to trial, starting with the Toronto 18, for example, or, or our very first case, our versus Kawaja, were disruption cases, right? Which meant that, as Jess says, they were left to bang. So to date, terrorism trials have been primarily about left of bang disruption, investigators preempted it, and we charged with terrorism. What we're seeing here, is, which is different in a couple ways, is a couple cases that are now being charged right of bang, so after and how to do with it. But as Jess says, I think the most important thing, or one of the most important things there, is to recognize we've been talking for five or six years now about the danger of the far right. And what we don't have yet, despite having most of our terrorism prosecutions involving disruptive activity, we have zero disruption terrorism charges on the far right. So I think, I think you're absolutely right, Jess. That's the, that's the sort of next step to look for, is to say, okay, is this following into the priorities and, and leading to disruption, which is what we want to see. Yeah, which I think, and we've talked about this on this podcast to a certain extent too, really makes me wonder how far behind the curve we are on investigating these issues if we're doing them after the fact rather than before. And my view, and I think I've been very vocal about this, is that we really need to be reassigning investigative resources to that left of bank space to try to make sure that all Canadians benefit, and I'm using air quotes here, as much as everybody else can from these terrorism charges and the terrorism investigations. There's lots, you can say a lot of things about terrorism laws in this country, not all of them good, but let's at least apply them evenly and have everybody benefit as much as they can from them. So this is really helpful for context. I mean, when we think about this kind of left of bank thing, the first case I think of is the Halifax Mall case. There was a Canadian and an American woman, the American flew up to Halifax. And, and these were individuals that were absolutely inspired by a website that now defunct called uh, Iron March. And these were absolutely ideologically motivated people. But I was in government when this happened. And so were you, Jess. And actually, you might, you might have been as well, but in a different place. But I remember when this happened and they said, oh, no, it's not terrorism. They just wanted to go into a mall and shoot everybody. And it's just very odd that like for years and years and years, we just haven't recognized this kind of activity as ideologically motivated. So as listening to you guys and, and thinking about this and, and Jess and your comments on, on the, 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 the preemptive space, it's like, we've seen this, but we just haven't seen those charges. And I guess that's the first thing I'm thinking about. And then secondly, though, is, is more of a question, maybe I'll direct it to you, Mike, but one of the things we've talked about on this podcast again and again and again, and you've noted that, is that proving, what is the point of proving someone is ideologically motivated if you've already got them on like four counts of murder? Is this particular charge, is it the same, it is the same requirement uh, for burden of proof for ideological motivation as you would get under section 83 charges. Is that correct? Yes. That, that, that doesn't right. change anything. It doesn't. So it's still beyond a reasonable doubt. You still have to prove it. You still have to prove all the elements. In this case, most of your terrorism offenses, as we've talked about, are linked back to a terrorist group, right? So participation in terrorist group or terrorist activity, facilitation of terrorist activity. In this case, you have to prove murder. So you still have to prove murder one, so which is 
well, premeditated murder. Premeditated, yeah, planned and deliberate murder. Or, or in this case, you could prove murder too, which is just intentional killing. And then it would be bumped up if you prove the terrorist activity. What'll, what'll, and and so what you have to prove beyond reasonable doubt here is the same as for any of those terrorist activity-based offenses. So the political, or sorry, the consequence clause, the motive clause, and the purpose clause, all of which we've talked about. So all of that, all of that will still have to be proved the same as elsewhere. And so it's just interesting that it wasn't in an A3 charge. And it's, it's this other, as you say, we've never used this before. It's someone picked it out of the closet, dusted off and said, yeah, this, which is, which is odd. Yeah. And I think just for any legal followers out there, I think what will happen is we'll end up arguing second degree murder, which is intent, intentional killing, essentially. And, and then, and then my guess is they'll argue both planned and deliberate, which bumps it up to first degree and terrorist activity, which bumps it up to first degree from second. And that way you get two sort of two kicks at the can for getting it up to first. So then Mike, I have a follow-up question for you on that. If we're arguing planning in preparation, do you think that we'll also see facilitation charges? For, for this individual? Yeah, I, I, would, I would guess, and this has been a tricky one for us in the past because I, I, I think I'm remembering this right, but I, I believe most of our discussion at the time that these offenses came out was we sort of, we tacked on a couple, including this one, to deal with what happens if they actually follow through with the attack. And so often the facilitation was intended to deal with, as we've discussed, the, the pre-planning. So are you doing something to facilitate it? Once it actually takes place, that doesn't tend to get charged. The, the other side of it is that, I mean, that, that at that point will add nothing to you're already going to get the terrorism. So the communicative aspect, you're already going to get the life in prison. And if you're a legal follower, you might actually be interested in what happens with the mandatory minimum for first degree murder. So first degree murder has a mandatory minimum of 25 years. So no possibility of parole for life in jail, no parole for 25 years. In 2013 or thereabouts, we added uh, consecutive parole ineligibility. So you could stack them. So if you killed more than one person at a time, you can get 25, 50, 75, or in this case, up to 100. That's been challenged in, in the Manassian case or in the Bork case, actually out of Quebec. And But we have seen a couple of cases where they have stacked them, including one here in Alberta and one that arguably should have been a terrorism charge. And that's that's Mr. Bork out of, I believe it was New Brunswick. And, so, yeah, I think this is really interesting that so many of these cases that actually we're talking about uh, with regards to the stacking of sentences have to do with what we would normally call the far right, right? So you have the Bork case, say 75 years, and then the Bizonette case, which I believe was around 36, 40 years, and is now, I believe, being challenged at the Supreme Court? Yeah, so it started at the in Quebec, and he got, rather than 25 or 50 years of parole and eligibility, he got, as you say, I can't remember, it was 36 or 40, and no one, <laughs> as far as I can tell, is quite sure how they came up with, with 40 from that, but there you have it. So not surprising that got appealed to the Court of Appeal. And now it's being appealed onto the Supreme Court. And the question will be really the constitutionality of that, of stacking those parole ineligibilities. And, and I would guess the constitutionality of having parole ineligibility at all will be at issue at some level in that case. And so that'll come circle back to this case, because my guess is at the end of this, they're going to be asking for a sentence of life in jail, and it won't be 25 years, it'll be 
some increment, right? So 50, 75, or in this case, it could have been the London attack that could, could be up to 100. But in the background of all that on the legal side, there'll be this constitutional challenge from, as you say, another far right case with respect to the, the constitutionality of that. Yeah. And I mean, what's interesting about all this is I remember when Craig and I were talking about this, when the sentence was handed down and I found it somewhat infuriating the way that this, (laughs) not the first time I found something infuriating on the podcast, but, but he explained to me patiently as he always has to do the fact that you can't like the idea of the sentencing someone to like 200 years in prison, which they do in the United States is doesn't exist here in Canada because we see it as like a living death that like you're basically sentencing someone to a coffin and whether or not that's appropriate, I'll, I'll leave to our listeners to decide in their heads. But I believe that was the, the argument. Yeah. And I honestly think this will be an interesting one to see how it plays out from a legal side. Your, your listeners probably don't want to get into it too much, but I'll just say we you know, if, if you sentence a 60-year-old to life in jail with no possibility of parole for 25 years, that could be the equivalent. You may as well do 200 in some cases, right? And then if you, if you sentence a 20-year-old to stacked parole and eligibility, so 50 years, that may not be a life sentence. So the Supreme Court's going to have to grapple with what are essentially arbitrary determinations. It's not like we have a scientific reason for picking 25 years and, and how that's held up under under the Canadian Charter. Well, there's a lot to think about in this case. Obviously, this will be something we're going to be returning to on the podcast. And again, this is just intended to be a fairly clinical discussion of the charges at hand and and what may come down the road. But it's interesting to see the way it it may impact and intersect with other nominally far-right cases that we've had here in Canada, although they haven't been charged as such. But now I want to turn to another case that has not received a lot of attention, but I think it is worth talking about as uh, the extremist traveler issue is not going away. We still have a number of Canadians that are in Syria and we're not dealing with these issues. Some are uh, actually starting to come out and it's going to be interesting if they if they make their way back. So the extremist traveler issue is still very much alive and well, and it's going to continue to play out in the Canadian courts, possibly for the next decade or so. But let's focus on the individuals that are here. So this case comes to us largely from reporting from Stuart Bell at Global, who noted in June that Ikar Mao pleaded guilty to leaving Canada to participate in the activities of a terrorist group in 2019. Prosecutors have now dropped one charge and have also stayed charges against his wife, Halima Mustafa. Now, according to the Political Prosecution Service of Canada, these charges were stayed given, quote, her role, the evidence against her in the public safety protection assessment, end quote. Importantly, Mustafa has been in custody already for eight months, and so presumably she's out now as of June 2021. However, as Bell's reporting notes, Mustafa paid for most of the trip, having transferred more than $3,000 from her personal account to a joint account before leaving, and the money was used to actually buy the plane tickets. So that's obviously where Jess is going to be coming in, I think, to, to think through that. Now, we should also note that the couple was actually caught at the Syrian border or near the Syrian border. This, they do not actually seem to have crossed into Syria or to actually have joined the Islamic State or at least participated in any of its activities, although they certainly may appear to have tried. So I'd be interested in, in, in your take on this. And Mike, last time we started with you. So Jess, maybe you can give your take on some of this. There's a lot to say about this case. It's so interesting. First of all, I think the timing of their attempted travel to the Islamic State is worth a note. Like this is happening after the fall of the caliphate. I don't know where they thought they were going. 
and what they were going to do when they got there. So like that was a very curious piece. There was also a lot of interesting stuff that happened in Turkey. There's a there's a mix of reporting about how the Turkish authorities actually found out that they were in Turkey, but they were arrested in Turkey, charged with terrorism offenses and actually acquitted of terrorism offenses in Turkey before coming back to Canada, which is part of why Mao was he was he got some credit for the time that he was served in Turkish prison. So there's a lot of kind of odd things about this case, but as yeah, Mustafa's involvement is really interesting. So According to the agreed statement of facts, she transferred $3,000 from their joint account to the couple's shared account, which, if you're familiar with the Criminal Code of Canada, is, I would argue, a clear violation of Section 8303, providing making available property or services for terrorist purposes, because it's really about intending or knowing that they'll be used in whole or in part for carrying out terrorist activity. So there's some interesting stuff there. She also sold her car as part of the financial preparations for travel in this case. So the last thing I'll say about this is the gender component. So right, I was going to say this brings together like it brings all your expertise to all my financing and gender. It's really all my loves. <laughs> if we can call it that sure. So Mike actually had a really good outline of this on the blog post that he did for Intrepid, sort of walking us through what the terrorism charges look like in Canada from a gender breakdown. Vast vast majority are men. It's one or two that are female, right, Mike? I think it's five overall. Is it five overall? Wow. Yeah. Well, well, and now we have one of them dropped and another one has stayed. Yeah. And a couple of them, at least, I want to say like almost half or more than half of those are sort of couples. Mm-hmm. So we really don't have many of the the Dugmosh is the, is the one that sort of comes to mind as the individual acting alone female. Yeah, so we'll have to pull up the exact numbers and the link to the the blog post for our listeners. But it's super interesting to me to see the charges against her being stayed. There's a lot of really interesting work that's being done in particularly in the UK and in the United States talking about differential treatment of women and men for similar terrorism offenses. And this is just another case in Canada that makes me ask that question. It's really a big question mark for me now, of course, there's always like differences in evidence and sort of what cases can be made and all of this kind of thing. But it's a very, I would say almost concerning trend that we're seeing in Canada. The last thing that I'll say about this is sort of the threat assessment that goes into whether or not she could pose um, a threat to public safety. And I think part of the issue that we're seeing in this space too, is that there's very little transparency on what that looks like. We know that in most cases, there are gender biases in our security and law enforcement services. So how much does that impact those assessments? I've done a piece on that for ICCT. I have a lot of concerns about that. And not just necessarily just in the, the Mustafa case, but in sort of our application of our law enforcement security service, policing and investigation of terrorism writ large. So I think that's really an interesting point. And uh, I'd be interested, Mike, I mean, we keep referring to this blog post you did for our listeners. Go to Intrepid. We have actually broken down and provided to you free of charge all of the data on terrorism charges that we have, because Mike's just amazing at doing this kind of empirical research. So if you want to actually look at the charges that we've had in Canada, they are there and available to you. And I'll make sure that there is a link to that in the pod description. So Mike, uh, what's your take on this case? You know, I, I don't have 
a whole lot to add other than what Jess said. I'll just say fr from a legal perspective, it surprised me a little to see the charges dropped at this late stage where two things are true. Uh, one is the agreed statement of facts in the dropping of charges, as Jess said, seems to indicate the elements of a crime. And so it, it's odd to say, well, we're going to drop the charges as we agree that it seems like a charge was committed. Now, you don't want to say that's for sure. It, it's perhaps the case that they just had significantly, and there's some evidence to suggest they had quite a bit less evidence with respect to her as they did uh, with respect to him. I, I'm not sure. But then if that's the case, the, the sort of the, as an academic, I try to be both the prosecutor and defense so that I'm, I can be as, as neutral as possible in these cases. And so the so defense side of me would say, yeah, yeah. Well, and I guess the defense side of me then says is, well, if the evidence wasn't any good, what the heck's been going on for two years? Like, surely we've been known that these charges are not, they weren't charged and then dropped a week later, right? They've been sitting there. Um, and, and I believe I believe she had a contested bail hearing too. I could be wrong about that because there were there was a disagreement about conditions. But that that is still an indication that they thought it serious enough and that there was enough information to go forward at the beginning. For the Public Prosecution Service of Canada, that means that they had reasonable prospects of conviction. They could not have started unless they thought they had reasonable prospects of conviction. So if I go back from there and I say, your starting point was you had reasonable prospects of conviction. You have believed that to be true for, I can't remember how long this has been going on, but at least a year. And now you have a joint statement that seems to indicate the elements of an offense. We get back to Jess's question, which is, so, so why are the charges being dropped? And the usual answer is they're providing testimony against the other person, but there doesn't seem to be any evidence that that's the case. In fact, it looks like he might be pleading guilty. So, so it, it's confusing. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I don't have a good explanation, but I think what Jess raises, at least from the legal side, that backs up what Jess is saying, which is what's going on here? Is there, is there a gender role? And, and you've got to put it in context, right? You can't ignore the fact that, again, 62 cases and five are female. That is, there's no other, there's one other crime like that in Canada. It, it, even our most serious murder is not is that, that disproportionately male. And then the other side of it is, is it, it, you could say, well, maybe it's the charges themselves or what they might be, right? So uh, maybe it's related to the fact that this looks more like financing than what she was initially charged with, which is traveling to participate in a terrorist group. And we haven't taken financing very seriously, right? As Justice said over and over again, we have two cases so far. One of them's our lowest sentence to date, essentially, for an adult. And the other was a throwaway in the first case of Kawaja. So it does make you sort of wonder, start to then go back and say, well, what's, maybe there's something more here. I don't want to say there isn't. There's always a lot happening behind the scenes when it comes to investigations and prosecutions. But I, I, I don't think it's unfair to sort of wonder what's the gender component here? What about the financing component? Are we taking it seriously? Why did this come to pass over that timeline in the way it did? Yeah. And I just want to weigh in on, on the evidence piece here, because I know a lot about financial intelligence. And so we can look at this and say, maybe there's a lot less evidence against Mustafa. Fine, we don't have all our insights into that. But when there's a transaction like this that occurs, the $3,143, there is a paper trail, a very, very clear, easily accessible paper trail that is well accepted by the courts. This is not problematic evidence. This is very, very clear. So 
maybe other elements are less clear. I don't know. We don't know what's happening there, but this is a really interesting piece of it. Do you guys think we need more transparency here? Like, is that the issue? I can understand saying, okay, well, there's extenuating circumstances. We don't actually want to charge this person, but we're not going to say why. Like, like maybe there's very good reasons not to charge this person. And I don't know what those are, but I mean, I'm, I don't want to necessarily disagree with the decision, but I think the, the thing that I'm getting to here is that like, there's been some choices here made and not just in this case, but in cases since 2001 regarding gender, regarding financing, and we don't really have good insight into what those decisions actually are. Yes. Yeah, so I think your, your use of the passive voice there is really great stuff. Decisions you know, I did it in my writing too. So this is something I get yelled at for a lot. But that's exactly it. And I think it like speaks to the transparency issue, right? Decisions were made, but what were those decisions? Who made them? Can we, can we know a little bit more about that? Because the problem is, is that we as researchers and, and commenters are trying to figure out what those reasons are. And we're finding some bad answers, I think, from a government perspective. So it would be nice if maybe the government could actually explain a little bit about their reasoning there so that we're not left with these very difficult and really ugly answers. Yeah, I think this this gets me into sort of one of the reasons I want to be a little careful because you never know, just in criminal law in general, you just you just never know all the, but we don't have all the facts, right? So this is where I sort of said, well, we don't have all the evidence. And, and the other thing is we won't have all the facts with respect to the individuals, right? Maybe, maybe the guilty plea came about through an agreement that if charges were dropped, there would be a guilty plea on the other side. Maybe there's all sorts of family or mental health dynamics involved that would indicate that it makes more sense from a security perspective to drop the charges at this time, right? Maybe there was a risk assessment, but who knows? So, and, and a lot of that stuff you don't want, you don't want the prosecution services, or both provincial and federal, coming out and sort of saying, yeah, we dropped the charges against X because it turns out that they've been diagnosed with what it's just, we don't want to see that go that route. Having said that, in this case, I think this is what this is what I wanted to pick up from Jess's comment, which is that when I say it looks like they might not have had as much evidence, they didn't, it looks like they might not have had as much evidence with respect to her traveling to participate in a terrorist group, which was the charges against her and him. So, but that gets you back to, but why were those the charges against her when the most obvious thing she did is 83.03, as Jeff says, which is terrorist financing. And there you say, well, did, does it look like they didn't have as much evidence against her? And you would say, no, it looks actually from the press release like they had a lot of information and that that would be easily accessible from you know, TD Bank or CIBC or where, wherever she did the, the transfer and it wasn't particularly hidden. And that's where you might want to sort of say, okay, this is, this is, this is now a little bit confusing for, for, I think for the public, for those of us who, who follow it closely as to why there weren't financing charges in the first place. Cause you can say, okay, there might be reasons to drop it, but it looks like some of the reasons to drop it might be associated with possibly an interesting choice of charges in the first place. And so what we can ask and ask for more transparency from here is an explanation as to, this looks like financing. You released a statement of facts that said, an agreed statement of facts that says this looks like financing. Please tell us why financing wasn't charged in the first place. Perhaps that's the better question. And I don't think that's unreasonable. <laughs> and why aren't you going through with it until, until now? I think, I think that is a little more to me, but it's, it's a good point by Jess. And I just wanted to follow up on that. Yeah, and if not, and if not financing, because there are some technicalities in terms of the criminal code around that, it's also very easily a facilitation charge. So 
those are the two obvious ones. So here we are again, pulling out our hair at trying to understand terrorism charges and prosecutions in Canada. We seem to be moving down the road in some ways and seem to be going in circles in others. But I want to thank you guys for joining me here today to clinically walk through these charges, these cases, and to maybe give us an indication as we head into summer, actually it's midsummer, trying to figure out where, where we are. And just, I should also plug here just for a sec, for those who are interested in terrorism financing, Jess has now put out her own Substack that you can subscribe to uh, where she's actually going through in detail a lot of the financial intelligence stuff that we know about cases, including a really interesting takedown of the far right and, and Proud Boys discussion. So highly recommended to everyone. Guys, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Seth.